Good morning, church. How are you? Good morning. It is so good to be home. I've been away for three weeks and it feels like forever. But uh, I got to spend a great two weeks in LA doing, uh, taking 13 students over to do mission work in the Dream Center in LA. If anyone's ever heard of that, they do some great work over there, feeding homeless and doing all that kind of fun stuff. And so that was amazing and it's good to be home. And I don't think I've preached for about a month and a half and so I am excited to bring the word. Uh, are you ready for the word this morning, church? You ready? Fantastic. We get to continue on with our Daniel series. And I haven't spoken in this series, so all series I've been waiting to use the title of this. And so uh, the title this morning is Dan the Man. Yes, has absolutely nothing to do with the uh, message, but if you're taking notes, Dan the Man, it is. All right. Uh, last week we heard a great message from, yeah, where is he? Dan the Man. Is he here? There he is. <laughs> Dan the Man. Um, last week we heard a great message from Pam about Nebuchadnezzar and um, it was good. Uh, and at the end of chapter four, we see Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, after his seven years of acting like a wild animal and all the things that he has gone through, we see right at the end that he acknowledges God as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and gives his praise to him. And an incredible way to finish out chapter four. 30 years on, we get chapter five. So there's a big 30 year gap between chapters. And it's 23 years after King Nebuchadnezzar has actually passed away. We've had four different people uh, come to the throne. If there was a Babylon days of our lives, it would be about the throne because there was murder and scandal and betrayal, all these kings coming to and from the throne. But in chapter five, we end up with a character on the throne called King Belshazzar. Uh, the uh, setting is that they are in the middle of Babylon. That's a given. But uh, they are... In the middle of Babylon, King Belshazzar, uh, he's very aware that the Medo-Persians are increasingly getting closer and closer to coming to attack the city, but he seems to have an inflated sense of security. Well, why wouldn't you? You've got this double wall around the city. It's a fortified wall. You've got one. If you get through that, it's kind of hard to get through that one, but if you get through that one, there's another one. And these guys have 20 years of food supply inside the walls. So they're not worried about famine. They are set for a stakeout. They have donuts for the night. They can beat them. Okay. And water. They're not worried about water either. The, the river of Euphrates runs right through the middle of Babylon. So they've got double walls, 20 years of food, water flowing freely. They've got nothing to worry about. So it would seem. Six times in this chapter, you'll see King Belshazzar referred to as Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's a, it's a misconception. It's just a way of speaking in that time. He was actually his grandson. And so we see uh, the setting here is that we have an ever-approaching army of the, uh, the Persians, a prideful king, and the truth of a prophecy, if you cast your mind back to chapter 2, waiting to be unfolded. So if you have your Bibles with me, uh, with you this morning, we are going to pick up in Daniel 5. 
And it says this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets and, and that had been taken away from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Uh, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, custom would have it that the women wouldn't usually be in this party. They would be in another room. The men would have their party in one room, uh, and the women in another. It wouldn't fly today, but this is what was happening. But at this particular night, uh, King Belshazzar, in all his arrogance and pride, invites in the wives, and so there'd be probably about 2,000 there, and then that's not enough. Invite the concubines too. So there's a whole heap of people in this room partying. And the, the Hebrew word there, when they said they're drinking wine, they're drinking a lot of wine. They are having an enormous party and some scholars would say because of the women in the room, for lack of a better term, it's kind of like this wild drunken orgy going on in the middle of Babylon. Now he, in the middle of this, King Belshazzar goes, bring in those, you know, those goblets that we took 70 years ago. They have been in storage for 70 years. And then this king, in his drunken stupor, goes, hey, bring in the goblets so we can drink out of, I don't know, what was wrong with their cups, with the holes in their cups or something. But bring in the goblets. And this is kind of one of those moments that if Belshazzar was around today, he would have woken up from the party, rolled over, looked at his phone, checked his Snapchat story and thought, what have I done? It's those kind of moments. This was not a good idea. As we read on, we'll see. And, uh, but King Belshazzar was not afforded this luxury to grasp the weight of what he had done. You need to understand the situation in which the goblets were taken from. In, in Leviticus 8, 10 to 11, we see that Moses goes throughout the temple and he anoints Every single article of the temple, every utensil, every bowl, every goblet, every lampstand, and they're anointed for the service of God. The adjective of the word in Hebrew that they use there is actually, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It is M-A-S-I-Y-A-H. If you phonetically sound that out, it is, it's set apart for the Messiah, These goblets were not just any old fancy cups that the party planner was stoked to get in the room. They were anointed for the service to and for and the worship of the Messiah. And here King Belshazzar says, bring them out and we will use the holy goblets to toast our unholy cause. And I love... uh, in, 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 In verse five, we see something happen. It says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote and his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. 
Now, in a room of two and a half thousand drunk people, I'm sure they were still standing around going, oh, I love this new cup. Thanks for the cup, Belshazzar. I love when you get free things at parties and things like that. But the king is sitting, it says he'd been on a platform and he was freaking out while everyone's like, best party ever. Oh, floating hand. I love that floating hand. Like, hashtag floating hand. Hashtag judgment. You know, and, and I'm not sure they've caught, caught on to what was going on. Like, God was fine with Belshazzar's party. Have your party. I don't care. You desecrate yourself. But a line was drawn when he took what was holy and toasted it to an unholy cause. And God stepped in and said, enough is enough. That has been reserved for the service of the Messiah. That has been reserved for worship to me, to serve to and for me. You don't, you don't get the privilege of taking what's holy and using it for a cause that's unholy. And these days there's no physical temple set aside and anointed, but 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 says this, you realize, don't you, that you're the temple of God? And God himself is present in you. No one will get by with vandalizing God's temple. You can be sure of that. God's temple is sacred. And you remember, you're the temple. If God was so moved to wrap his hand in flesh and write on a wall when just the goblets were being used to toast an unholy cause, how much more would it break his heart to see you and I, the living, breathing temple of the holy God, starting to pour our lives out for unholy causes? To Timothy 2.21 puts it like this, I love it. In the message version, become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guest for their blessing. That's what we're called to be, church, that we would be a a container ready and present to be poured out as a blessing to God's guests. Church, you need to know today that you are marked as holy. I believe in the spirit realm when we, we accept Christ, we're actually marked. We are marked as holy. We, we are marked as set apart. We're marked as uncommon. And, and you need to be awakened to who you are and whose you are. You are the temple of the Most High God and you belong to the Most High God. And when that revelation drops, your life begins to start to act accordingly through Jesus Christ and his grace. And and, and when you get that right, filling your cup with junk of the world just doesn't seem right anymore. That, 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 That wine that used to taste so sweet of gossip kind of tastes a bit bitter in your mouth now. That pride just doesn't seem to sit in the cup so well. The malice, the betrayal. You know what? That, that flirting with the person at work while you're married doesn't sit so well anymore. That looking at the websites where in your private browser because no one will be able to find it on your history doesn't sit well. It doesn't sit well anymore to cheat on your taxes or, 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 or to add those people on social media because you just want to look. And all of the stuff that the culture around you seems to go along and fit in so well doesn't fit in your holy vessel so well anymore. Because you are God's. 
You are the temple of the Most High God. You don't have to worry about missing out, church. The psalmist says, when I pour out my heart to God, my cup overflows. Daniel wasn't worried about missing the party. Church, you're set apart for holiness. I don't know, maybe some of us read it and think, he's just trying to have a party. Come on, Jess. It's a bit dramatic. He's just having a party. They're just trying to be happy. You know what? As Christ followers, which is totally contrary to our culture and what it will feed us and what it will uh, give us the nice little quotes on Pinterest and things like that, our pursuit is not of happiness. It's of holiness. That's not our pursuit, church. We are called to be countercultural. We're told to pursue holiness. And in allowing Christ to transform us to his image of, of, of holiness, and that's the key. You allow Christ to transform you. It is not behavior modification. You allow Christ to transform you into his image of holiness. It's there that you find true joy that is grounded and rooted in the fact that you're redeemed, saved, uh, restored, forgiven, and that nothing can take away the love of Jesus Christ. That's where true joy comes from. Happiness based on circumstance can come and go. Gosh, people lose their happiness over the weather. My joy is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ saved me and I'm going to be eternity with him. And that's what we're called to pursue, church. Not happiness. That's a nice added bonus sometimes. But we are called to pursue holiness. That is who we are. That is who we are. And so uh, the king's freaking out. Back to the party. And he calls in the wise men and the magicians. Uh, I'll give a royal robe. I'll give a gold change. You, you know what? You'll be dressed in purple. Even I'll give you the third in charge in the kingdom. If someone can just tell me what he's writing. And it just says in uh, Daniel 5.10. Uh, before that it said, none of them could read it. Not even a syllable. And then verse 10, the queen comes running in and says, hearing the voices, the king and his nobles came to the banquet hall and said, may the king live forever. She said, don't be alarmed. Don't look pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and a knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what it means. And so Daniel arrives. And the king addresses him. He's like, I've heard about you, that you're full of the Holy Spirit and that you've got a brilliant mind and an incredibly wise. Imagine, imagine if someone says, I've heard about you. You're full of the Holy Spirit. What a great thing to have said about you. The wise men and the enchanters were brought in here to read the writing on the wall and interpret for me. They couldn't figure it out, not a word, not a syllable, but I've heard that you interpret dreams. The word in the Hebrew there says, you unravel knots. 
So if you can read this, interpret it for me, you'll be rich, famous, purple robe, the great gold chain around your neck, third in command of the kingdom. And Daniel answered the king, I love this, keep your gifts. Keep the change, you filthy animal. (laughs) Give it to someone else. I don't need what you've got. But I'll read the writing for the king and I'll tell him what it means. But just before he does this, Daniel, now now heading towards his 80s, he's becoming an old man. I think he's, he's kind of done with this Babylonian culture. He goes, let me tell you a few things about your father before I read this. You, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? You remember he had actually something great to boast about. You, you've done nothing. Well, what are you doing here? You boast, you're pride, you're arrogant, but you've done nothing. Do you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar was like a wild animal? Oh, those were the days. You remember, right? Even he, even he found humility and acknowledged God. But you, in verse 22, it says, you're his son. You've known this. You are as arrogant as he ever was. Look at you setting yourself up in competition against the master of heaven. And he goes down and he says, but you treat with contempt the living God who holds your entire life from birth to death in his hand. And I I wonder why Dan wasn't invited to the party. He he seems like such a fun, tolerant guy, you know. But Daniel was saying, after all this, come on, Belshazzar. You still set yourself against the Lord? It is interesting to note Daniel wasn't invited to the party. Yet he was the one who was called upon. I love that time had not weathered him. And Daniel 1 verse 8, he says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And here he was again, same man. Intact integrity. He wasn't distinguished enough to be included with the nobles. He wasn't with the in crowd, but he was the one fit to be called upon when speaking of heavenly realms. It had been over 20 years since Daniel had held any kind of significant title, any kind of influence in the kingdom. No longer was he part of king's wise men, But it was Daniel who was ready. It didn't matter that he no longer held that position. In the eyes of the world, he was deemed insignificant. He was ready when called upon to be the Lord's mouthpiece and his integrity and devotion to God remained even in the midst of a foreign land because of this. He knew who and whose he was. Church, your integrity and devotion should never be determined by whether you have a title or a significant role. We are called to be ready in season and out of season. I'm so glad when they called upon Daniel, when the queen ran in and said, I know the guy who can do the thing. I'm so glad he wasn't in the back corner drunk saying, I'm not a wise man anymore. That's not my job anymore. We don't get the excuse of time or title of whether we are going to be who God calls us to be. When we're set apart, we cannot use time. I used to do that ages ago. 
I used used to do that ministry ages ago. I don't have to be an example to the younger generation anymore. I used to have that title, but I can gossip all I want now. I used to do this, but it's past time. Time is irrelevant when you've called to be holy. Title is irrelevant. Man-made titles are relevant because God has marked you as chosen, reserved for my service. Let us be containers worthy of the blessing to be poured out to all of his guests. When we're set apart, this is your title, church. You're holy, set apart, uncommon, anointed, consecrated, clean and reserved for the service of the Father. That's who we are. We want to be countercultural, understand who we are. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, Your heart should be holy and set apart for the Lord God. Always be ready to tell everyone who asks why you believe what you do. I've found people only ask why you believe what you do if it is evident in your life. They have no reason to ask if it's not outpouring and outshowing and being outworked in your heart. And so Daniel turns, he's like, righto, now I've done my spiel. Here you go, king. It says, mene, mene, tekel, perez. It means this, God has numbered the days of your rule and they don't add up. You've been weighed on the scales and they don't weigh much. Your kingdom has been divided up and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. I love how Beth Moore puts it. She says, like, let's simplify it down in her southern twang. She's like, I am, I know, I act. That's how she says it. I love it. I am God. I know what you've done and I will act accordingly. And that very night that the hand of God came and wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez. That very night, King Belshazzar was killed. In that fortified city, who would have thought? Double walls, heaps of food, water. Let's throw a party that very night. And you know how the enemy got into that seemingly unbreakable city? There was a river running straight through the middle of that city, the river Euphrates. And whilst the men, the noblemen who should have had the city's best interests at heart were right in the middle getting drunk, all the enemy had to do was a little way up cause a little blockage in the river. And there was just enough gap to creep under the walls. The symbolism here does not escape me when it says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm not making this about alcohol this morning. Don't, don't you dare make this just about one thing. Because many times in the Bible, it refers to the Holy Spirit as water, the water of life, the river running from the throne that Jesus gives us, the cup of the water that ne- will never thirst again. And here... In the middle of the city, they're getting drunk on the the culture around them. And we too can be so intoxicated with what the world is offering us that a little way up ahead, we didn't realize the Holy Spirit wasn't flowing in and being full. And it's in those gaps the enemy gets in and we become defeated because we weren't full of the Holy Spirit, but rather drinking in all the culture gives us. We cannot afford that. 
This was not the first time we saw this hand of God right on stone. We've seen this hand before. And it came and wrote the law. It wasn't the last time we'd see this hand right. And I am so glad about it. The next time we see God's hand wrapped in flesh, writing on stone, it's amongst a commotion. It could be so easily overlooked. But in the middle of a commotion where a woman is in adultery, that hand of God wrapped in flesh writes again. And where the crowd is going, justice, this woman's done this. And and they're even showing the law that was written by that hand the first time and saying, we want justice. The hand writes again and says, oh, you, you who have not sinned, cast the first stone. And one by one, they go away. They slip away. And as he writes on the stone, he says, there's no one condemned you, woman. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This time we see the hand right not in law or judgment, but in freedom. And I'm so thankful for the third time the hand wrote because there seems to be something about the three because the first day in the grave and the second day in the grave kind of held Jesus really tightly, but there was something about the third that brought new life. And I'm so glad that the hand I reach for now is not writing judgment on the wall, but it is extending grace and forgiveness towards me. Notice it's not a license to go sin. I don't condemn you, sweetheart. No, no, no. But go sin no more. Galatians 5 encourages us. 13, you, my brothers and sisters, you're called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in humility and love. Don't use your freedom to pour judgment out of your cup, but be a blessing to those around you that you would love one another. Use your freedom and your holiness to be in a rightful position to love the way Jesus needs to love. I love that Daniel was a container that was not filled with junk. And when called upon, he goes, oh, hang on. I just have to get all this out of the way. He was ready for the service of God. And so you and I need to be. The beautiful news about those goblets. Yes, they were filled with the wine of Babylon and toasted to imbecile, dumb, deaf gods. Toasted to unholy causes. But the great news is in Ezra 1 verse 7, after Babylon had been uh, taken over, King Cyrus decides to get all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord in which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the temple of his God. And we see in chapter 8, Ezra chapter 8, that they're all anointed again. They're all set aside again. That, That word Used to anoint means to be pronounced as clean. And I'm so glad that there's a third hand that offers grace because if you and I, if you're anything like me, you have used this holy vessel for unholy causes before. But I'm so glad that the word says that he anointed again. You have never gone so unholy. You have never used your cup for a worse cause than grace can reach in. 
And today I want to encourage us. This is an encouraging message, kind of. Um, No, it is because grace is what we are transformed through. We don't have to try and do it on our own anymore, church. But we need to know who and whose we are. When we forget that is when we go astray. We get in conversations we shouldn't. We say things about people we shouldn't. We go places we shouldn't. We enter into relationships we shouldn't because we forget that we're the holy vessel of God waiting to bring the good news of the gospel to the earth. That is our sole purpose. Not titles or time. You're holy, set apart, reserved for the work of the Lord. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you have taken a path that you know is toasting some worldly kind of cause, not even evil, but not contributing to the eternal cause of salvation of the earth, there is grace enough to redeem you, pronounce you as clean, wash you over and say, let's get on with it. I want to pour my wine, my anointing wine within you that your cup will overflow again. Amen. Let's stand as the band comes. And as we we just declare God's goodness, if that's you this morning and you think, I have used my cup for so many things other than God, reach out. The hand has never, ever retracted. His grace is always there. If you want prayer, we'll be here to pray. But I pray as a church, let's declare his goodness and remind and tell our spirits again, he's good and I'm covered by grace in Jesus' name.